Welcome to the Impact Multiplier CEO Podcast. If you're a chief executive or if you think like one and you want to create exponentially greater impact, then this show is for you. My name is Richard Medcalf, founder of Xquadrant. I coach some of the most successful and impressive CEOs and executive teams on the planet and help them achieve even more extraordinary results. Because no matter how successful you've been in the past, there's always a whole new level of impact available to you. So, if you're ready to play a bigger game than ever before, I invite you to join us and become an Impact Multiplier CEO. Dan, welcome, and uh, it's great to see you. Well, thank you so much. Looking forward to our conversation. So, Dan, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. I've, I've followed you for, for many years. I know you've got a great story. You've built businesses. You've lost businesses. You've uh, you've created one of the world's top podcasts. You're a New York, New York Times bestselling author. Um, but more than all that, I love your heart, which is, I think, around getting people in touch with their purpose. And I think that's what your business 48 days is all about, if I understand it correctly, from what I've seen of it, at least. So um, I know there's many things in that. So why don't we just stop and say, like, what are you? Yeah, let's start with your purpose. You know, what are you all about in life and what's the business that you've built? Well, thank you for the introduction. And you really did go right to the heart of what matters to me. So I, I love the opportunity to build a business, to increase impact and influence. But at the end of the day, what I really want to do is help people unpack you know, their unique talent, their unique passion, their unique dreams, and how to turn that into meaningful work. So that really is pervasive in everything that I do, whether it's talking to one of my grandchildren who's 13 years old, or if it's talking to a seasoned CEO executive who's you know 62 and wondering how to really maximize the remaining years of their work life. So that's... That's what I do. I've had the privilege of doing that for a long time now. And every day is brand new and exciting. Yeah, I love it. I love that zest for life. And yeah, you say it's uh, it can be an exponential journey, right? It, every year can become more exciting than the, than the previous one. I think I see that in the ambitions that you have as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Every new year just brings new opportunities. Every day does. I mean, getting up every morning yeah. does. I'm just that kind of guy. I know I'm the eternal optimist, but uh, I think that's a choice. And I it just I just like that view of the world. You know, is mm-hmm. it overly optimistic? I mean, there's a new book out called Toxic Positivity, and some people question whether it's unrealistic not to just spend a lot of time in sorrow and grief. But uh, for me, I'm, I'm always looking for, you know, the rose on the other side of what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. So what I, yeah, so what I want to know, Dan, on that is, where did that sense of that mission come from? Because there's always a story, right? There's always a backstory. It doesn't just emerge randomly one morning over coffee. There's something in your, you know, in your, in your, in your own backstory. So what was it in your own life that made this sense of helping people find purpose quite so yeah, important? You know, you know, it's an interesting question. And it's pretty easy for me to follow the dots back to where that was. I was raised in a poor farming family rural Ohio, you know, here in the United States, we were very, very poor. Remember when we purchased our first cow, milked that cow by hand, and then slowly got another one, got up to 12 before we had any kind of mechanized milking machines, you know, just the hard life of being on a farm. And I was really taught in my family structure 
that's what you expect. Don't expect anything more than that. Don't talk about joy in your work or doing what your dreams are calling you to at all. It's just do what's responsible. Do what's practical. Mm. We just, you know, try not to mess up too much <clears throat> and then we'll go to heaven and everything will be wonderful. That's sort of survival mentality. Perhaps. Oh my, yeah, very much so. But somewhere in that poor rural farming environment, I got a hold of a little audio recording by Earl Nightingale titled The Strangest Secret. And in there, that gravelly voiced old man talked about, we become what we think about. And I thought, would it really be possible for me as a poor farm kid to change the expected trajectory of my life by controlling what I think about? And it became a very central theme for me then and remains so today. I controlled what went into my mind. So while my you know, peers were reading girly magazines, you know, I'm listening to audio cassette programs with Jim mm-hmm. Rowan and Zig Ziglar and Dennis Waitley and Owen Vince Appeal, all those old masters of achievement. And I've just been an avid consumer of content like that. So always consuming positive, pure, clean kind of information. I don't get up in the morning, grab my phone, turn on the TV, get a newspaper, none of that at all. I want to control that period of time. So I start my day with the kind of mental outlook and expectation that I want to have. Now, that's not true of my siblings. I was the middle of five children, two older, two younger. They lived out the expectations of that simple farming environment grew up with a significant amount of resentment about how we were raised. And I'm like, geez, get over it. You know, go and take responsibility for your life. Mm. I don't say that out loud, but I observe that and think it. But my life is very, very different than the rest of my extended family. It's just because of those choices that I've made. Yeah. Yeah. Key choices. Yeah. Around around the content that you consumed about, you know, what was going into your mind. And you're right. We become the the stories around us, the conversations. uh, Yeah, absolutely. So that set you on a new trajectory. But that didn't necessarily lead to this final mission that you've got to at this point in your life. So how did you get to that? Okay, I'll give you the quick version of that. So because of what I just described, I did start seeing opportunities everywhere. I mean, when I was six years old, I started selling Christmas cards door to door. And then I'm a couple years older and I saw the fresh sweet corn in our garden after mom had canned and frozen all we needed for our family. And it was just going to be fed to the cows. And I thought, wait a minute, that's wonderful, wonderful, tasty sweet corn. So I get up real early in the morning as a little kid, pick that put it in a trailer behind our one family tractor and drive two miles up to a paved road, put up my little sign, you know, 30 cents a dozen and started selling. And I had that thrill of doing something people valued. They willingly gave me money. I take out the expenses in that case, nothing. And the rest is profit. And I just kept seeing opportunities like that. So that's all I've ever done at health and fitness centers, you know, auto accessories, business, other kind of things. And it was in my mid forties, when being an entrepreneur, being a sales guy like that, in my mid-40s, the church that we were going to in Nashville, Tennessee, a large church, asked if I would teach a Sunday school class on career life transitions, these inevitable changes that people go through. And I said, sure. And I expected to have you know, the 18-year-old who was trying to decide what to major in in college or have the 24-year-old who was just out of college and realized, gee, they didn't have the Mercedes in the driveway and the picket fence that they were led to believe they would have. It was a little tougher than they realized. I had a few of those, Richard, but what really surprised me is that room filled up with doctors, dentists, 
physicians, attorneys, pastors, engineers, accountants. I'm like, what are you guys doing here? And hmm. what they said is, everybody sees me as doing okay. And by all external criteria, I am. But I don't think this is it. A lot of those people who were, you know, CEOs or executives were there because of family expectations. They were oh, fulfilling yeah. generational expectations. And I said, yeah. you know what? I'm living somebody else's dream, not my own. So it's that process of creating a more authentic alignment. And often it comes when somebody's 45, <clears throat> 50 years old, a more authentic alignment with what that person is doing. That's the sweet spot that I moved into in my mid forties. And of course now years later, that's still what I do. That's what excites me. That's what gets me up in the morning. It's so <clears throat> rewarding to work with people. And it's not just that everybody has to change. That's not true at all, but it's to recognize the spectrum of opportunities out there. So you can really yeah. consciously <clears throat> choose. This is what I want my life to look like. Yeah, uh, yeah, fantastic. Uh, yeah, I can just picture that room you were in with all those um, doctors and lawyers and, and the rest there. I, I, I've seen it myself. And one of the things that I, the little alarm bells go off in my own mind when I'm working with, with somebody, an exec perhaps, and and they'll they'll say something like, they'll start to tell me how great things are for them, <laughs> right? It's like, on one level, I shouldn't complain. I've got all these things. And you know what actually means is that at that point, their heart is not in it and they're trying to justify yes. it to themselves and to me. And, <laughs> you know, it comes out at some point, right? And, and, and it's, it's, it's clear that you can have all those external trappings, but that sense of purpose isn't there. And uh, yeah, and, and I sometimes people try to defer it. Like they say, oh, I'm just going to get through this bit of my life now. And then when I yes. retire or whatever, I can give back or do something more rewarding. But... I can't buy that story. My mother died when she was 59. It's like, you don't get to retirement necessarily, right? You know, you don't get to that mystical time in the future necessarily. Uh, so the time is now. And right. the courage to actually make those moves now, I feel is, is so important. I was working with a gentleman just this week who came to me, 47 years old. He has a professional degree, very respected in his profession, paid very well, supportive wife, four kids, beautiful house. And he is totally, totally burned out. I'm like, you know, okay, what's going on here? You know, by all external criteria, it looks like you're doing mm. well. Mm. I said, what do, you, what do you want your life to look like three years from now? If we were to meet three years from today, what would have to happen in that period of time for you to be really happy about how things have turned out? And he didn't have anything there. He couldn't identify anything. He couldn't identify anything other than what he was currently doing. And he said a phrase, Richard, that just absolutely stopped me in my tracks. He said, we're living. His wife was on the call with us. He says, we're living, but we're not dreaming. I thought, wow, does that describe a lot of people? Mm. They're living. So that room that filled up with dentists, doctors, attorneys, and so on. Yeah, that little, that class grew. We outgrew the room that we had there. We outgrew the time frame. I moved it to a Monday night meeting, open community meeting, did that for a couple of years, then had an opportunity to get on radio, went from radio, did that for six years, then started the podcast. But that's the central message. It's okay. You know, you don't have to just keep doing what you're doing, but you do have to be able to dream, to imagine, to get a sense of what would you want your life to be like? Otherwise, it's pretty predictable. It's going to just continue to be what it is now. <clears throat> yeah. So how do you um, what do you recommend, right? If somebody feels that they're living and not dreaming, if they feel they're stuck in a rut, yeah, yeah. How do you kind of address that problem? You know, how what would you recommend people do? 
Sure, great question. You know, life leaves clues along the way. That's why it's easier to go through this process with that 47-year-old than it is with an 18-year-old. An 18-year-old hasn't had enough life experience to really look back and see the recurring patterns. 47, you can do that. You can look back. One of those times when you really felt like you were in the zone, we talk about athletes being in the zone. You ought to recognize that. Just what, oh man, this is what I was born to do. So it may be, you know, when you're around older people or young people or not people at all, but rather ideas. When you're in a sports event or when you're out in nature, there's no right or wrong, good or bad, but you ought to be able to start identifying that. And in doing so, clarify three areas. What are your skills and abilities? Not just what you have the ability to do, but what you really enjoy doing. Number two, what are your personality tendencies? Meaning, how do you relate to other people? How do you manage? How do you persuade? That tells us a lot. Again, no right or wrong. A lot of people think they have to remake themselves to be successful. No, you can embrace what you know about yourself. Find environments that embrace that as well. And the third area is what I call values, dreams, and passions. What are those recurring thoughts? A lot of times when I get with that stuck 47-year-old, we unpack things that he thought about when he was 18 but was told that that's not realistic. That's not practical. You can't do that. So they push it under the carpet and try to do something normal, practical, and realistic, and thus walk away from what their heart was really calling them to. So that's the process, no matter what the age. Identify your skills and abilities, your personality tendencies, your values, dreams, and passions. That gives us a clear focus. And then we can start to look at what kind of work, career, business environment brings those together. Yeah, it's kind of yeah, bringing all those areas uh, together. It's, it's the Japanese ikigai thing, right? I suppose of yes, um, which is a, a kind of a multi-dimensional Venn diagram. It makes me laugh. I just remember think, seeing a, a meme or a picture on the internet at some point recently, which was uh, a couple like a, a parody of these kind of things, right? You know, I think the ikigai is what you're good at, what you love, what the world needs, and what you can get paid for. There you and go. Yeah. Which is kind of what you're saying, right? I think there's pretty yes. much those four areas. Uh, and there's a that zone in the middle, which you want to aim for. There, there was a great parody of it, which was there was like what I'm good at and what I love. And then there's a whole separate sub, a whole separate circle, which was what I can get paid for. And then outside all of those circles was this big wobbly line saying what I actually do. <laughs> and it wasn't <laughs> touching anything, which I thought was, uh, which was quite hilarious. But um yeah, but it's easy, right? Because we can get carried along by, we make a decision, we come out of university or whatever, we make a decision, we take another job, we do this, and we've, we kind of find ourselves in this situation, which isn't necessarily lighting us up. Now, the thing I hear, and I made my move out of corporate, you know, and I had to, there's a bit of a courage in those decisions sometimes. A lot of people I know will say to me something like, oh, you know, I've got a family, Richard, you know, I've got the mortgage to pay. It wouldn't be responsible for me to really shake things up too much at this point in my life. Sure. What would be your response to that? Wow. And that's so common because they believe that change is going to lead to less. You know, when somebody loses their job unexpectedly, they immediately think, gee, I'm going to turn back in the car that we leased. We're not going to go on vacation this year. We're going to pull the kids out of private school. They always think less. And yet oftentimes, 18 months later, they say, wow, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. It opened me up to ideas that I had buried, new opportunities that I wasn't aware of. Now I'm making twice the money I was making. You know, all those things that happen so often. We have to believe that we can take an unusual path 
that the common, average, normal, mediocre is not forced upon us. That's just when I first started writing, and I didn't start writing again until my mid-40s. I had never explored that, never took a writing course, never explored that as a possibility. Didn't see myself as a writer. But in that little Sunday school class, I started having people ask for content. Gee, I've got a son-in-law who's been without work for three months. What can I give him to tell him what you just told us? And I didn't have anything. And I finally, just under duress, put together just my rough notes in a three-ring binder with a couple of cassettes in there back in the day and started making those available. Then I went to a Mark Victor Hansen uh, conference in Los Angeles, Mark being the co-author of Chicken Soup for the Soul. And he talked about how to sell books. I came back and in the next 30 months, I sold over $2 million worth of that three-ring binder that I had. Mm. So that was my entry into writing. Then I had publishers knocking on my door. It took a very reverse process. I never did a proposal for a publisher and looked for a publisher, didn't have an agent. I just had publishers knocking on my door because they saw what I was doing with the content I already had that I was doing myself. Mm. But here's the thing, Richard, that's so critical in this. If I look at that as a guy who wants to make extraordinary income, we were told, we're told now, 95% of authors never make more than $40,000 a year. That can be discouraging. What I did, since I was seeing the opportunity there, I said, how difficult can it be to put myself in the 5%? I only have to do things that most authors don't do. Mm. And so that's exactly <clears throat> what I do. I love writing. I do love the fact that I'm New York Times bestselling author, you know, that that my publisher superimposed on me from whatever that means. But I have a lot of books out there and I've sold a lot of books. Last year, when I look at the royalties and advances that I got in terms of the income generated, less than one half of 1% of my income came from those royalties. Now, that's a very unusual approach as an author, because most authors write a book, then they want to sit in a lawn chair by their mailbox waiting on those royalty checks to come in and end up disappointing. So it, no matter what it is, if it's being a doctor or an attorney or an engineer or whatever, <clears throat> we can take a very unusual approach to really maximize what you want to accomplish in your life. Hi, this is Richard. I hope you're enjoying this conversation. This is just a quick interlude to tell you about my book, Making Time for Strategy, which is being released in January 2023. It deals with perhaps the number one challenge I've come across in my coaching work with top executives, how to get out of the weeds of operations and make time for the high impact strategic work that will lead to breakthrough results. If you're serious about multiplying your impact, you do need to elevate your use of time so I highly recommend that you head over to makingtimeforstrategy.com where you can find out more about the book and download some free chapters. Now, back to the conversation. I love it. The, the way I, I describe that, I describe it as strategic naivety. Um, but what I mean is the averages don't apply to me is kind of how I assume. Because I'm only one person. That's so, right. 
I don't change any of the averages. I can do whatever and it's not going to change the overall average. So I like to say that to people if they want to get a new job. They're like, yeah, it's a difficult market. I said, you need 0.001% of the job market or something. You know, it's like nothing. It's just insignificant. So it could be the worst economy, the best economy. You just need such a tiny sliver. It doesn't make any difference. Uh, It's the same thing, right? Like, um, yeah, as an author, what's how much money might I make? Well, a lot of people make this, but you could make 10 times more, 100 times more, right? Uh, because the laws don't have to apply to you. I am I primarily, that's a helpful way of living life. I'm primarily known as an author, and I love that. I love the whole sense of being an author. I love books, the feel of them, everything about them. But again, that's not where I make my money. Yeah. It's not in the way that most authors do. It's by giving people other ways to experience the message that is in my books. So mm-hmm. that being online communities, in personal coaching, in groups, in masterminds, and in investment clubs together. It's those kind of things that embrace the principles of my book, but the book itself generates very little income. My projections in my income, when I look at it manually, looking forward, my projections for book royalties is always zero because I have no control over it. It is what it is. I mean, I got a royalty check today that was unexpected from one of my books. Well, that's nice, but it it certainly is not something that I count on or plan on or predict or depend on. No, I'm doing other things. But again, sharing the messages that I have the privilege of putting in books, but sharing the messages in ways that allow people to engage at higher levels. So I have a question for you as you, 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 you're obviously you're this thought leader, uh, author, and you have all the things we've been talking about. But as you mentioned, you're also a born entrepreneur, you know, from age six, uh, uh, selling your, um, your uh, sweet corn, right? So yes. um, you've been very successful in, you know, best-selling author. Your podcast is one of the top rated. Um, you've been a pioneer in many of these in many of the online business areas uh, over the years. Um, so I'm wondering what's your, what is your perspective? Like, how did you do that? I guess is the question. So timing might be an issue because I think you, you, from what I, my sense is that you were often quite early on some of those trends, possibly with podcasts and things, you were probably one of the first. So was that the reason or would you look back and say, you know, this was the thing that I do that most people don't do that has led to me being able to really multiply, uh, you know, my impact uh, across across all these business areas. Yeah, there are a couple. Well, there's multiple reasons, and I have to kind of stop and look introspectively to try to identify what those were. One is, well, this is going to sound counterintuitive. One is consistency, and another is the ability to walk away from something. So it sounds like those don't go together. I started doing my podcast after six years on the radio on 100,000 Watt Station, then got started doing the podcast in December of 2006. So we're well past that. I've never missed a week. I've never done a replay. There's few things that build trust, like consistency. Mm. So there is that. However, along the way, there have been applications of my message that we've left behind. Part of my goal setting every year, I want to have my goal set by November 14th 
I'm very strategic about that to identify what do I want the next year to look like in seven different areas of my life. November 14th just happens to be 48 days before the new year starts. So right. staying true to my brand, I like that. Then in the holidays, it's amazing how much progress is made because once you have clarity on what it is you want as your target, the doors just seem to start opening magically. But as part of that process, each year I identify what is the 15% that I've been doing this year that I'm going to discontinue. Now, I'm really, really a radical about that and oftentimes stop things that have been very successful in terms mm -hmm. of how other people see them. But that's the only thing that allows me, instead of just growing, like, you know, you put in your garage more and more stuff, it just loads up in there. I want to stay clean, <clears throat> purely mm -hmm. entrepreneurial, lean machine moving forward. And so the only way I have room for new ideas is to eliminate something. Yeah. So I do that, I eliminate some. So let me ask you, Dan, let me, let me, let me, let me push you on that one. So what's, sure. what was the most challenging or the hardest 15% yeah. you ever had to let go of? that actually turned out to be a great decision once you'd done it. I'm sure there were some things that you said, I've got to do it, but emotionally, I'm not sure I want to. Yes. But it turned out to be great. Yeah, I can tell you, I can tell you lots of them, but I can tell you the one that comes to mind immediately when you frame it in that way, the one that was most painful. I was doing a three-hour workshop, leadership development workshop for corporate organizations using the DISC, the personality profile, to help them understand how to maximize leadership potential. A lot of times mid-level managers got promoted to that just because of their longevity, not because of their competency or their unique qualifications, but because right. of longevity. And it really was a deterrent to their best performance in doing so. But anyway, I was doing those 20 people at a time and companies like General Electric, uh, National Federation of Independent Business, Deutsche Bank and others. And I would, I would do one session in the morning, 20 people, one in the afternoon, and be there for lunch. And companies were paying me $8,000 a day. And this was years ago. I don't know what the, how, to, how to say that in currency in your yeah. country. But anyway, $8,000 Amer American a day. That was one of the things that I cut. I was having requests for that. It was easy to just line those up. But it didn't really fit where my heart was leading me. You know, I, I like working with people who are creating new ideas. I'm not really drawn to just the consistency, the maintenance that's often required in corporate organizations. And I let that go. But there've been lots of other things. I was doing a conference called Right to the Bank, a play on words because the right was W-R-I-T-E, Right to the Bank, showing authors how to do what I've done with books and getting those out there, getting mass distribution and profiting financially from that. Well, I did that for six years. And then it became obvious to me, everybody out there is teaching people how to publish their book. You know, there are things out there, how to write a book in 30 days and all kinds of crazy things like that. And there was just so many people doing that. It was just one more in a sea of sameness. I decided, okay, I'm going to stop doing that. We recently just stopped doing our coaching with our coaching mastery program, teaching people how to be coaches. Coaches. We started training coaches. Years ago, when the term coach was not really mm. well known outside of a sports con right. context, yeah. we started training coaches. That idea has maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars training coaches. Now, everybody's a coach. Mm. Everybody's yeah, a coach. Yeah. It's, so, it's so easy. There seems to be no obstacle to, to call yeah. yourself that. And it's just kind of lost its unique appeal. We stopped that program. 
we transition that into what we call Eagles Elite, where I use the same content almost 90%, but now it's not just for coaches, but it's for anybody who's building a business. We're getting a lot of traction with that. So I keep looking for, okay, what's the next iteration? What's the next wave that's coming? So I, I'm willing to walk away from things, again, cutting 15% of what I'm doing annually. Mm. So I leave room for something new. But those two things, which seem counterintuitive, again, stopping things, but staying consistent on the ones that really matter, have worked yeah. extremely well for me. Yeah, that's fantastic insights. And uh, it's a timely word, right? It's, it's uh, as we're recording this, it's just coming up to the to the new year. And um, yeah, you're speaking to me as well. I, I, it's, I'm in that process as well. And I know I can generate more ideas than I ever have the time to do, right? Mm-hmm. And even as I build up my team, it's still hard choices. And um, that via negativa, as I think it's called, that, you know, do, progress by elimination is, yes. is very counter counterintuitive it's it's quite yes. hard for people it's yeah. you know you can't have spring right without winter or without fall and autumn and winter and and that process of pruning back and yet right. if you go into most businesses and say hey guys let's have a time of pruning <laughs> you know <laughs> I was like that's not fun let's have a time of growth that sounds exciting but in nature but if, you need both that, that's right and if we look at government organizations as a bad example they just keep adding things in. Once mm. something is started, it's it, almost impossible to remove it. So they just yeah. keep adding, 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 and it's bigger and bigger and bigger. That's not a healthy sign. I mean, good organizations know when to prune, <clears throat> when to cut things, when to stop doing things they were doing last year. So yeah. they can keep being excellent at what it is they do uniquely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, um, you know, as, you, as, as you know, I've got you know, my book coming out and, and, that is a lot about that because making time for strategy the whole point is if you want to make the fine time for the breakthrough projects you need to make time and you need to bring out the sword and start cutting things away and that and there's a whole load of fear that comes up in people's minds when they think about that there's a little leadership skills necessary you need to influence people there's all these things that need to happen but it is the way of growth it is the way of growth yeah, fantastic. So, um, so what's what's going on for you, Dan? So you know, you've you've been at this for I don't know what it is, twenty plus years, right? Also in, in this current incarnation, um, some people might say, "Why do you why do you keep doing this stuff? You could retire. You've you know you've got enough resources, money, whatever. At this point, you don't need to do this. You could just enjoy all your grandchildren and everything. You know, what keeps you going? What gets you out of bed in the morning?" It's doing exactly what we're talking about here. This is exciting to me. Working with a new person who feels stuck and then they see the light. They see the possibilities. Start that is incredibly thrilling. That's a whole lot more thrilling to me, Richard, than chasing a little white ball around a course, which a lot of guys my age are doing. I just, you know, retirement by definition implies I'm going to stop what I'm doing now so I can really just enjoy life and do what I want to do. Well, what a novel idea. What if you figure that out in your work? Yeah. This is what I want to do. This is the thing <clears> I enjoy most. Retirement loses its appeal. So wow. I have that question come up often. You know, how long are you going to continue doing what you're doing? And it's it's funny. A lot of my peers, the question implies, gee, Dan, apparently you didn't do a very good job of planning financially. How much longer are you going to have to do all the things you're doing? 
And that there's no way to explain that away. There really isn't. And I just laugh and go on. Well, but, what I've noticed, Dan, actually, is there's these extremes. And, and a lot of people, execs, are like, you know, I only know how to be a workaholic. Uh-huh. So I'm either a workaholic and it's damaging my relationships and my health, or I'm like zoned out, not doing anything. You know, mm-hmm. just kind of entertaining myself, and and I had these discussions often. It's like I'm not sure I can find this middle ground where I do something that I, mm-hmm. you know, where I can be involved in something and not go over the top. And I think that's a really important skill to master. So I tell these people when I hear that, I say, "That's your development area. That's your transformation." Because when you get to the stage where you do it just because you love it, but it doesn't drive it doesn't drive you and make you into a martyr then you can enjoy that. But right now you don't have that space. It has to be all or nothing and neither are are great outcomes. They really aren't. Well, that's where we we talk about balance and sometimes people just think that means spending equal time in different areas. It's way more than that. But I, I continue to enjoy what I do. I work way more hours now than when my three children were small. Mm. Then it was a different season of life. I needed yes. money way more then than I do now, but I worked less then because that was an important part of that season of my life. Now our children are gone. They're out on their own, spread around the world. My wife is busy. She's an artist. She has, loves things that she's engaged in with yeah, people so in the community. Gonna, yeah. She supports what I do. It gives me a lot of freedom in that. I love working more hours than I've ever done. <laughs> yeah, well... I, my idea of ending well is to write a chapter of a book in the morning and go to my funeral that afternoon. <laughs> That's a great quote. Yeah, it's interesting. I um, My kids are still um, teenagers, um, but they're in a stage of life where Saturdays, they have to do homework and things quite often. Um, it's getting a bit serious now, the studies, right? It's getting, you know, they're getting to that level. And um, and so occasionally I'll do something for work. I don't generally have a principle of working weekends, but and then occasionally my wife would say why are you working I'll be like well actually I'm not I'm being creative I'm doing Aww. like this is actually fun stuff I'm 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 bringing I'm creating something like other, some other people other people could be creative you know they can cook or they can draw or whatever right and and well actually I'm doing that kind of stuff but just in this area which I love and which excites me and so I think uh this is the heart of it right for people is if you're just doing work because it's out of fear basically, and out of a lack of imagination, then your life is passing you by. You know, there's nothing that has opened new doors of opportunity for me like books have. Books have been my window into a bigger world when I was a little farm kid and mm. continued to be so today. So I get a lot of requests for doing forwards and endorsements on books, and which, which I do. So the, it kind of is the question you're, you're just asking there. So if I'm Mm. reviewing a manuscript to produce one more forward am i working or am i doing something else i i would i would want to be reading anyway it's what i would do in my leisure time <laughs> is read so if yeah. i'm reviewing a new manuscript yeah it's part of my work but again it's inseparable i don't live two different lives work and then something else it's all the same all the same hat all the time yeah, fantastic. Well, Dan, this has been such a great conversation, you know, so much wisdom and um, and heart in, in what you have to say. So just thank you for, for sharing that. If people want to kind of get, get in touch with you, find out about what you're up to, 
Uh, how do they best do that? One of the books that I wrote is 48 Days to the Work You Love, and it proved to be such a magic pill. It was like somebody poured gasoline and everything I was doing when I added that 48 days as a timeline in which you can change your life dramatically. So we brought that to the forefront, made that our brand, our name, name of our company. So that's it, 48days.com. A lot of resources there, of course, connection to my podcast, but a lot of resources for whatever somebody wants to do in their own journey moving forward. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. So I've, I've followed you. I've listened to the podcast on many occasions. Um, so I would definitely recommend all of those you know, resources. And I say what I love about is you've managed to build this great spectrum of of work right from the really free stuff like the you know the podcast and, and so forth all the way through the you know through your books all the way up to the the the, the level where I know you know you run high level masterminds and and you and, and you you get people co-investing with you in businesses and all sorts of fun stuff so mm-hmm. um I say the, your entrepreneurial output is is pretty uh prolific so um it's impressive to watch so thanks Dan for for sharing some of that story with us today Absolutely. My pleasure. Never get talking about it. It's been a delight to talk to you, Richard. Okay. Thanks, Dan. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Now let's talk about you. When you're in top leadership, when you're in the biggest role of your career, who supports you at a deep level as you lead others? Who helps you multiply your impact and get to the next level? If you're ready to learn more about our content, our coaching, and our community, then visit us at xquadrant.com.